Steve Toya Graham should be named Mother of the Year. But she certainly reminded us of the authority of a mother. When she discovered that her 16-year-old son was caught up in the lawless events that recently took place in Baltimore, she did what the law and the police couldn't do. Well, fortunately, what she actually said to him as she was smacking him upside the head and dragging him off the street was bleeped out. But for the sake of this morning's message, I'm going to put into her mouth the words of Jesus. You know, everyone in the street may have been telling Michael that he had the right to throw rocks at the police and loot and burn down buildings. But I can hear his mother saying, but I say to you. And that's exactly what Jesus said. More than once, when dealing with matters of law in the Sermon on the Mount. And when he said it, it was probably as shocking to the disciples as was what Toya said to her son. After all. What would you think of someone who boldly declared, you have heard it said, you shall not commit murder, but I say, you shall not commit adultery, but I say, you shall not make false vows, but I say, you shall love your neighbor, but I say. You'd probably cry heresy and run the other way. But that is what Jesus said to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. He had just introduced the kingdom of heaven by outlining kingdom attitudes, what we call the be attitudes, the way our thinking and our life must change if we are to become citizens of heaven. He then told us that we would be rewarded with a deep-seated joy that would sustain us even when we find ourselves treated as he was treated. And he illustrated our kingdom obligations by telling us we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. He now moves to address our relationship to the law. Since his disciples would be transitioning from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, what changes were to be expected with regard to the law? Well, it begins by first making it clear that he hadn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he should be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, when Jesus spoke of the law and the prophets, he was 
speaking of the entire Old Testament. Now, in general, when a Jew spoke of the law, he could be referring to four different things. He could be referring to the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. He could be referring to the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. He could be referring to the oral law, the scribal interpretation and application of the law. Or he could be referring to the entire Old Testament, generally referred to as the law and the prophets. Well, it was the whole of Scripture to which Jesus is referring. The law as recorded by Moses and the call to obedience as demanded by the prophets. Jesus is making it clear that he didn't come to destroy the moral and ethical code that had guided God's people for centuries. Rather than to abolish it, he had come to fulfill it. And he could do that two ways. He would fulfill the law's demand for perfection in his own person, and then he would enable us through forgiveness and the power of the Holy Spirit to live up to the full intent of the law. And we should never think that the law was done away with. Jesus makes it clear that as long as heaven and earth exist, the law is in force. That which is moral never becomes immoral. And that which is immoral never becomes moral. Now, that obviously has bearing on the current debate about homosexuality. The law, down to the smallest letter with every I dotted and every T crossed, will remain in effect until the law has accomplished all it was intended to accomplish. And that time, obviously, has not yet come. So God's moral demands have not changed. The ceremonial law was changed when God fulfilled it by sending the Lamb of God that had been anticipated in the Old Testament sacrificial system, but the moral law remains unchanged. And anyone who minimizes even the smallest part of God's moral law, who redefines it or says it no longer applies, is wrong and will be considered least in the kingdom of heaven. You see, leaving room for honest misunderstanding, he'll not necessarily be condemned as a false prophet, but he'll certainly not be held in high esteem by the king. If we want to be considered great in the kingdom, we'll keep the law. We'll do what God says, and we will teach others to do the same. Now, one word of warning. Our keeping the law can't be pharisaical. The Pharisees gave the impression that they were committed to keeping the law, even the scribal law with all its rules and regulations, but they were only concerned with the externals. In the 23rd chapter of Matthew, Jesus exposed the Pharisees for what they were. He said they were outwardly appearing to be righteous to men, but inwardly 
They were full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They were like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but on the inside they were full of dead men's bones and decay and uncleanness. If that's the kind of righteousness we have, we'll not be allowed in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, if we want to enter the kingdom of heaven, we'll go beyond the external demands of the law. And that is the point Jesus was making when he said, You have heard, but I say to you. He didn't proceed to minimize the law. He maximized it. He went beyond the externals to the heart. He made it clear that the moral demands under the new covenant, under grace, are actually greater than the moral demands under the old covenant, under law. And he illustrated that fact by showing how the New Testament The New Testament standard exceeds the Old Testament standard in six areas. In the area of murder, adultery, divorce, vows, retaliation, and even love. This morning, we're going to look at murder. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder... And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. If, therefore, you are presenting your offering at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way. In order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge and the judge to the officer And you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you shall not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. The law said you shall not murder. But if you did, you were subject to judgment. You had to face the court to see if you had, in fact, murdered someone. And murder is always wrong. Now, killing someone may be justified, but murder by its definition is always wrong. It was wrong under the old covenant, and it's wrong under the new covenant. But the new covenant goes further. Rather than simply judging the act of murder, it also judges the heart from which murder springs. The Old Testament said you shall not murder. But Jesus said, control your anger. Reconcile your brother. Befriend your opponent. 
righteousness. Look again at verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever shall say, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. It's not enough to be able to say, I never murdered anyone. Jesus wants to know if you ever wanted to murder someone. If you wanted to, even though you didn't actually do it, you're as guilty before God as someone who did. Why? Because God judges the heart. Did you allow anger to build in your heart? Do you nurse it and feed it and let it grow? If you do, you should be judged before the court as a murderer. And if you've allowed your anger to express itself with words of contempt for someone, you've called them stupid or empty-headed, for that's what raka means, you should be taken before the Supreme Court and judged there. It's a very serious offense in the kingdom of heaven. And if you passed judgment on a brother and declared him to be morally bankrupt, a fool who has said in his heart there is no God, you have condemned yourself to the fires of hell. Anger is a very destructive thing. And even if you don't destroy someone else with it, it will destroy you if you don't keep it under control. And it's not enough to just keep it from expressing itself by murdering someone or calling them names or wishing they'd go to hell. You've got to get it out of your heart. Altogether, you've got to confess it as sin and be forgiven of it, just as you would murder itself. And then you've got to go further yet. You can't let your brother remain angry with you. As a citizen in the kingdom of heaven, you have a responsibility to reconcile your brother. If, therefore, you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. You know, some might assume that worship is the first priority in the kingdom of heaven, but it's not. Jesus made it very clear that if we come to worship and realize that our brother has something against us, that we've offended him or done something to make him angry at us, our first priority is to reconcile with our brother. He doesn't even want our offering until we've at least made the attempt to get things right with our brother. 
Now, it is true that we may not be able to reconcile all differences with our brother. But as Paul told us in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Christ wants us to not only examine our relationship with him when we come to worship. He wants us to examine our relationship with each other. If we discover that we've done something that's causing our brother a problem, we better clear it up without delay. We wouldn't want our brother to be angry with us or to hold us in contempt or to wish us condemned. We wouldn't want him to point a finger at us on judgment day and say, he made me do it. Now, of course, that wouldn't excuse his behavior, but it just might condemn ours. We have a responsibility not only to condemn or to control our anger, but to help our brother control his. And not only do we have a responsibility to our brother, we also have a responsibility to our opponent. Let's read on. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, in order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you shall not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Now, the assumption here is that we are guilty, that we have done something we shouldn't have done to someone, and that if we don't get the issue resolved before we go to court, we will be found guilty. Now, Jesus will address the issue of giving to our opponent more than he deserves in verse 40. When he'll tell us if someone wants to sue us and take our shirt, we should let him have our coat also. But here he's simply saying that we shouldn't let anyone get so upset with us because of what we've done that they feel compelled to take us to court. We should resolve our differences before they go that far. We should even attempt to befriend the one who has become our opponent. And we do so not just to keep him from pressing charges, but to actually resolve the problem. We do what needs to be done to make amends for our action. We apologize if needed. If restitution is called for, we pay it. Whatever is required, we do. We do everything we can in the hopes of making our opponent into our friend. We don't want anyone, even someone in the world, to be angry with us. We don't want anyone to wish us dead. We don't want to make a murderer out of anyone. As citizens in the kingdom of heaven, we're to make the world a better place, not worse. That means we control our anger. 
we reconcile with our brothers and we befriend our opponents. It's not enough to say, I never murdered anyone. If we ever wanted to murder someone or did things that caused others to want to murder us, we are guilty and in need of forgiveness. If the demands of the new covenant seem more stringent than those of the old, it's because they are. It's harder to be righteous under grace than it is under law. You can be righteous under law by just doing the right thing. Under grace, you are expected to be right. But grace also means we're given what we need to become what we are expected to become. We're not on our own. If we'll let him in, if we'll let Christ come into our heart and do within us what we could never do by ourselves. We can be righteous under grace. He'll change us from within and He will make us fit for the kingdom of heaven. I can think of no better gift than that to give your mother on Mother's Day.